Hi FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. And welcome back to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9 Hi FM. I'm Rabbi Ari Kiefman and it's great to be with you here on this wonderful afternoon. Today, we are going to talk about something we've been doing a lot during this pandemic and that is eating food. <laughs> There's so much. Have you seen all these social media memes all about food eating? Anyone else starting to get a tan from the light in the refrigerator? Or this one, the buttons of my jeans have started social distancing from each other? Or so many days just eating, I think it's going to take a little longer than that to flatten my, cur- to flatten my curve. Uh, but personally, I haven't had a haircut in four months. When I stepped on the scale, I didn't realize how much all this hair puts on weight. Well, anyways, I guess if you're not losing any pounds during this town, why lose our sense of humor? So the idea that I want to discuss today is hopefully give us a deeper appreciation for our traditional laws and customs that are associated with eating. And just to think about the importance, you know, these days we aren't necessarily going to restaurants, not some of us don't do it all the time, but you're home with a family and eating. So giving our desire to learn a little bit more and implement more Judaism in our home these days, certainly food plays a central role there. So if you look at the big picture, we've discussed many times on this show that one of the unique aspects of Judaism is that it features laws not only in areas of morality, community, and spirituality, but also in areas of our personal regular life. And food is a prime example of that. By exploring how we eat, Jewish law helps us, number one, with self-discipline. You know, the, the various laws and customs associated with eating require that we think twice before we eat our foods. Sometimes we're told to refrain from eating something, right? Meat, um, milk after meat. Sometimes we delay and sometimes we don't eat before, say something after, all these different examples that you could think of in your life. And all this helps us build our self-discipline into what could otherwise be very much an animalistic sphere of our life. And this is a very important aspect. In fact, somebody said to me the other day, a doctor, he said, if people were to apply the same discipline we have for our observance of the laws of kosher, you could keep any diet in that way, exactly that way. So if a person could be disciplined in what and when they eat, then that person could be disciplined in so many other areas of life. You're probably very familiar with what they call the marshmallow experiment, which was conducted a couple of decades ago at Stanford University in the US, where these kids were offered a choice between one marshmallow right away, immediately, or you could have two marshmallows if you waited 15 minutes. And those kids who were able to wait it through the 15 minutes, researchers over time found that those kids who delayed their gratification tended to be much better off in so many areas of life from their test scores to a healthier BMI and so many other life benefits. So there is a tremendous benefit we could all gain from our commitment to kashrut, self-discipline. But it's not just about self-discipline. Let's think about our connection to Hashem. 
You know, the relationship that we build with God, the word mitzvah, I've mentioned many, many times, does not just mean a commandment. Kosher is not just a commandment from God, but when we fulfill any of the commandments, we are thereby actually bonding. We are strengthening our connection with Hashem. And our connection with God is all-encompassing. God wants a relationship with us and He's all of us, including the bodily domain of our eating, even the regular food that comes into our mouth, just a regular mundane activity could actually be a mitzvah in so many ways. What do you do with the energy that you gain from the food? Do you say a blessing before you eat the food, thereby elevating it? And another very important aspect is we get to fulfill the divine plan. God wants what's called a dira batachtonim. It's explained in Kabbalistic literature and Hasidus. That is to satisfy God's desire of creating the world. God wanted us. We are partners with God in this world. That means every act from eating our food is still considered a very big part of partnering with Hashem in the existence of this world. So these areas of life, which seem most removed from spirituality, well, unless you're going to look at the pun of the spirit, it constitutes perhaps the lowest strata of existence. When we make this sphere worthy of God's presence by following the various laws associated with food, we build a home for God in this world. We make this world a godly place. So stay tuned. And today we are going to discuss the laws, some of the aspects of Jewish food and Maybe I can give you some food for thought. And we're going to look at not how we choose or prepare our food, but how we eat it. And I look forward to discuss this with you today. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. And welcome back to Soul to Soul. I'm Rabbi Ari Kiedman. Great to be with you here this wonderful afternoon. And today we are going to continue our discussion. We're talking about the Kabbalah of food. Please join me for this Food for Thought. Quickly recap what we're discussing here. We're going to talk today about food, about the laws of kashras. And we're, we're not going to talk so much about how we choose or prepare our food, but we're going to focus more on what we eat. Number one point to bear in mind is that kashrut is a lot about self-discipline. It is, if you could follow the laws of kashrut, you certainly could do well on a diet because you know this food is okay, this food is not okay, and you could apply it to anything else. The reason why many diets don't work is because people don't want it to work. They're not making the effort for it to work, and that's why it's not working. Number two, our relationship with God. Any commandment, meaning mitzvah, is a connection. So, by fulfilling God's will in our eating habits, we are thereby actually bonding, connecting with Hashem in the food we eat. And number three is the idea of part of the divine plan. When we eat kosher, when we keep kosher, we are making this world, we're fulfilling the purpose for which God mandated that we be here. Now, previously we talked about the Jewish morning. In fact, yesterday's year we discussed the brachas in the morning. And we know Jewish law dictates that after the morning brachas, we proceed to the full morning davening. Right? First we communicate with God. And, you know, they say first communicate with God, then focus on your personal needs. And that's a very common idealism. But 
I'm not talking today about prayer per se. In fact, next week, please God, we'll spend time on prayer. We're focusing today on eating. Because if a person's hungry, guess what? The Shulchan Aruch says in Arachayim, you are not allowed to eat if you're... Um, sorry. In Shulchan Aruch, it tells us, if you're hungry, you're allowed to eat. Now, even though it does say in Shulchan Aruch that you're not supposed to eat before davening, that is true. But we're going to talk about what eating is permitted, what eating is not permitted, and thereby gain a better understanding of this idea of what it means that it's better to eat in order to pray than to pray in order to eat. Okay. So with that theme in mind of eating in order to pray rather than praying in order to eat, Hasidus really put an emphasis on prayer, you should know. And when the Hasidic movement started with the Baal Tev, many Jews were davening by rote. They were rushing through the prayers. The Baal Shem Tev and his students, his successors, they didn't like that people, that the davening was just this lip service, that it was just uh, get it done with. That mindless, hurried prayer undermines the relationship with God that we all want to have. So the Hasidic movement started a prayer renaissance, you could say, where thousands learning how to pray with concentration, with, with focus, with passion. When I went into the rabbinate, I was told, either you put fire in the sermon or put the sermon in the fire. And likewise, we could say about prayer, that prayer itself should have that fire, that enthusiasm, that excitement, the passion in it. Because it's a relationship with God. And we want that it should be real. A real relationship. So that's why the Hasidim say that it is something that's commendable to eat or drink, have a little bit of coffee before davening. So you can have that strength that you need to daven with, with care and passion. The, the story goes that the daughter of one of the Rebbe's was very ill. And the doctor told her that she has to eat immediately when, we wake, when she wakes up in the morning. That was the physician's order. Now she preferred to daven first thing in the morning. She was a religious, devout woman. So she would wake up extra early and she would daven. Then she would eat, and like this, she was able to satisfy somewhat, to some degree, the doctor's instruction of eating earlier in the morning. But when her father, father-in-law heard this, he said, better to eat in order to daven than to daven in order to eat. And that's the theme that we're discussing here. I think it, it, it shares with us a perspective that sometimes our spirituality, our prayer, and our physical lives, our eating, are not connected. We engage in both. But the two don't inform or influence each other. They seem to be worlds apart. Our physical world, our spiritual world. Sometimes we pray to eat. That means we engage in spiritual pursuits, not because we seek spirituality in that moment, but for some ulterior motive. For the reward. The ideal is eating to daven. Meaning that the physical realities of our life 
serve a higher purpose. They help us engage in spiritual quests in what we're looking for spiritually. Meaning our physical is to help our spiritual so we can become more God-fearing, so we can connect with Hashem. So the idea is to engage more in, you know, even our physical, even our physical spiritual world I'm talking about. Let's say how we engage with our family and the acts of kindness we do. That all could be impacted by our spiritual, physical relationship. So, the idea then is, don't put the emphasis just on the spiritual. We should, yes, it's not saying that you have to eat a full heavy breakfast before davening. The custom is that you have to eat enough to be able to daven properly. You know the story about this angry wife. She met her husband at the door. And uh, there she smells of the alcohol on his breath. He could, he could barely walk a straight line. So she snarled. Ah, I assume that there's a very good reason for you to come waltzing in here at 6 o'clock in the morning. And he says, yes, there is breakfast. So since we may and sometimes ought to eat before davening, and it's appropriate that we should do so in order to concentrate on our davening. Therefore, the idea then is that though we have not yet discussed the specific rules, but we have to know it's important that there is a custom and many people do eat before davening. Again, not a meal, but something. Now the Gemara in Tractate Brachas, the Gemara tells us there that we actually have to feed our animals, whether they're kosher or not, before eating our meal. And this applies to any animal under your ownership. If there's an animal that relies on your food, whether it is a dog, a fish, a cat, you have to look after your animal's well-being before your own. Anyone knew that? Well, furthermore, the law allude, this law is alluded to in the verse, in the Pasuk, which we recite every day during Shema. God says, I will give grass in your field to your livestock. Right? The achalta, the savata, you'll be sated, you'll be, the achalta, you'll be, you'll eat, the savata, and you'll be satiated, right? Notice how the animals come first in this verse, right? If you look at this pasuk, we see that the animals come first. So we have to know the same, that we look after our animals, because actually the animals also provide for our needs. Yaivetz is one of the commentaries suggested that a dog and cat um, could find food on their own, so perhaps it doesn't apply to the dog and cat. But that's uh, totally at your discretion how you want to apply it. Some people say we can only eat a snack as opposed to a meal. That's really what I would um, what I would recommend. Some would say you can eat a snack yourself as well before you feed your animal because you need the energy to feed your animal. So then don't eat a full meal, but take care of your animal. 
And this is based on the story of Rivka, where she gave Eliezer water to drink before sharing with her own animals, as we know the story in the Torah. So if your animals don't need to eat when you desire to eat, there's of course no need to feed them first. The key is to ensure before eating yourself that their food needs for the day are provided as well. That's the main point. If your animal's okay on its own, then isn't the hate? Now, firstly, just to think about these laws and the importance of it. It reminds us about being compassionate and not causing pain to the animals. That's something discussed again in Halacha about how we care for our animals. And there's a Pasuk in Tehillim that tells us, it's in, it's Kapitel Lamed Vav, chapter 36. And the verse says, you save man and beast. And the Medrash interprets this verse to mean that you save man in the merit of the beast. The idea is that sometimes the blessings that we receive are not so much in our own merit. We might not be deserving but so that the blessing would flow to the animals that we own. Interesting. So it makes sense that we allow our animals to eat first, and there's a lot of commentary that discuss this in greater detail, which I won't do right now. But another explanation, another insight of this from the Alshech is that the consumption of food is the way, it's the means by which the lower... Um, forms of existence are elevated to something higher, right? And the vegetable is elevated when it's consumed by the animal, and the animal and the vegetable as well is elevated when it's consumed by the human. So in this model, it makes sense to go gradually. Allow the animal to do his work first, elevating from the domain of the vegetables the animal eats, and then the human accomplishes the next step by consuming the food. So that's a little bit of an interesting insight about the reason why we have to care for our animals before ourselves. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. And welcome back to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9. Hi FM, I'm Rabbi Ari Kiedman and today we are talking with you about the Kabbalah of food. Join me for this food for thought. So if you're going to eat any bread, then you have to wash your hands before you eat the bread, right? Now be sure that the bread is out and prepared because you don't want to have sick, a separation, an interruption between the making the Bracha on washing your hands and eating the food. Now, because it is a ritual wash and the bracha will be recited, this should take place somewhere other than a bathroom. Okay, very important. Notice here, you don't go to the bathroom ideally to wash your hands for bread because you're going to be saying a bracha. So it's best that the washing take place as close as possible to where you're going to be eating. Again, to avoid any unnecessary delays or interruptions. In my house, those of you who have been here, we're very lucky that we have a sink in the dining room. Not every home has that. In the house I grew up in, we would go to the kitchen when we were having our Shabbos meals. But 
if the idea is the closest washing station possible. Now, if you have anything on your hands, rings or I don't know what else you might have in your hand, dirt, make sure to remove it. So you might want to rinse your hand properly before doing the ritual wash as you would with your kvart, with your washing cup. Now, the best thing is to use a lot of water. The Gemara tells us in Tractate Shabbos that there's a tradition that being generous with the water for washing your hands can lead to blessings of wealth. Okay? So, that's very interesting. You know, we say in Tehillim, Koisi Revoya, King David says, my cup overfloweth. Well, here is a way for your cup to overflow. So pour it over the right hand from your wrist to your fingertips. And you're going to do this, well, depending on your custom. Some do it twice, some do it three times. And the Chabad custom is that we do it three times. But whatever your custom is, you start on the right hand and continue to the left hand. By the way, those who are left-handed will do the reverse order. Begin with your left hand. Lift your hands about chest high and you're gonna say the bracha al natilas yadayim. Okay, now, what's interesting is we don't say al rechitzat mayim. Rechitzat mayim means to the, the, the pouring, the rinsing with water. Aramaic word Netilat means, besides for taking, it also means, Natla is the Aramaic word for a keli, a vessel. And to do this washing, we use a vessel, which makes it different, differentiating from your typical hand washing. You go to that, you know, these days we wash our hands a lot. And it's important to wash your hands, prevent the spread of a virus. Make sure you are constantly sanitizing yourself. Well, we want to distinguish between sanitary washing of your hands and washing for the purpose of this mitzvah. Again, the idea of the word netila means the need to raise your hands, which is that we raise our hands when we do this bracha as part of the custom. Okay, so some people rub their hands together and run the palms of each hand right, like this, over the back of the other, and then dry them. Then you could go ahead to your table, hold your bread, and say the bracha hamotzi over the bread itself. Again, people dip their bread into salt, okay, and enjoy, bon appetit, right? Now, from the time that you begin to wash, be careful that you don't speak or get involved in anything until you've actually digested, swallowed some of the bread that you're eating. Why? That's a good question. Why? Well, when the temple stood in Jerusalem, there were certain sacred grain-based foods that a Kohen was only permitted to consume with ritually pure hands. So to ensure that Kohanim didn't falter in this area, the sages directed the Kohanim to eat all bread with ritually pure hands, it had to be tar. We know that when they went into the temple, how what would they do? They would wash their hands on the key, in the kiar, the wash basin. So we want to, so to say, um, perpetuate. This is one of the ways we remember the temple. You could say it's not about the memory of the past. Maybe this is one of the ways we're planning for the future. Because if you think about this, 
Firstly, really totally the Kohanim. But to strengthen this enactment, the sages directed all Jews to do this. But more so, we don't, there's no temple today, right? We don't have the sacred grains. But because we anticipate the redemption, because we are looking forward to Mashiach, so the sages instructed us that we all must be in the habit of eating bread with this appropriate way of ritually washing our hands this way. This is very interesting. This is like an anticipation of a future redemption. So just think about this. For nearly 2,000 years, we Jews have been washing our hands hundreds of millions of zillions of times, right? Every time, what for? Anticipating the arrival of Mashiach. And it's possible that more than ensuring that no mistakes happen with the truma, with this law, helped keep Jewish aspirations alive for return to Israel, for redemption. Because this is the way we Jews do things. We look forward. Another important theme in this is mutual responsibility. You know, we live in a society that emphasizes the individual. And it's difficult for modern people to hear that we have to wash our hands before eating because, not because it protects you, but because it protects others too. That's the same reason we're wearing a mask when we go outside now. And this is exactly what this law asks of us. We wash to protect the Kohanim, to ensure that they also will wash because this is a law relevant to the Kohanim. And just to think about this, Jewish law is anchored in a spirit of communal responsibility where people see it as their calling to do or not to do something to ensure better results for others. That's the idea behind this halacha. It is about caring for others, about being there for others. That is the idea. So yes, this concept of the sacred grain and pure hands is really for the kahanan. Why did the rest of us do it? So we can, so to say, encourage and be there with the Kohanim as well. That's why we're doing it. So it becomes something for all Jews. And today, where you would think it's completely unnecessary because we don't even have a temple. But we do this in anticipation of the redemption. And just to apply this, you know, for today, how whatever we, we can do to help protect others, not only that we don't catch the disease, God forbid, but also that to transmit it to others if we're asymptomatic, although I know that the World Health Organization can't make up their mind about that. Is the, the pandemic being spread by asymptomatic carriers or not? Separate discussion. Because World Health Organization is not sure about it. But there's another insight to this about why we wash our hands before eating bread. There's nothing simple about eating. So many people struggle with food. I know I do sometimes too. Okay, you look at the obesity that, that exists these days. And although kosher food is a good diet for the soul, and it's what God wants, it's not necessarily what the healthiest foods. And you know, people have obsessions with dieting, and you look at the inordinate number of people who battle with eating disorders, it's unbelievable. There was a guy who flew to London, he was an American, and he wanted to try his luck with uh, the dating scene there. <laughs> Quite funny. So he tried dating in the U.S. where he came from, but he didn't find success. And uh, every time he had progress, 
always something derailed the relationship. And he needed a fresh start, which is why he decided he's going to go across, hop across the pond, go to the UK, where hopefully he can find a nice shidduch. So he studied a little bit of the British language. He wanted to make sure he's not going to confuse his idioms. And on his first date, he made sure to say, shall I pick you up from your flat? Instead of saying apartment. And he knew to say football instead of saying soccer as us Americans do. And he made sure when he came into the hotel lobby to ask for the lift instead of the elevator. Everything on the date went well, except the next date he wanted to compliment this girl's appearance. So in his most complimentary voice he said to her, Oh, I must tell you, you look like a million pounds. <laughs> okay, it's a basic Kabbalistic idea that everything in the physical plane is a reflection of a higher spiritual reality. And so the daunting struggle that, you know, presented by eating is perhaps a reflection of the spiritual challenge that is inherent in eating as well. And the Zohar tells us that we need a sword when eating our meals. Interesting words from the Zohar. Why? Because mealtime is a battle. You hear this? Mealtime is a battle. You look at the Hebrew word, what's the word for, for bread? Lechem, right? Hebrew word for bread is lechem. Well, listen to this. Lechem means, what is lechem? We said bread, but it also generally refers to food. Okay? But the similar word is lochem. Lochem means a warrior, a battle. So the first frontier of the battle is to ensure that all the food we eat is kosher. And though keeping kosher today is easier than ever, but we still see that it's not so easy. And I know people tell me all the time, the price of kosher food, the price of kosher meat. I'll tell you, back in the old country, people had Mr. Snafesh, self-sacrifice, and they wouldn't eat meat. They wouldn't say, oh, it's too expensive, just don't eat it. Whatever the case is, it's certainly a challenge. And... What's interesting is, kosher has become so popular, I heard that in the 1980s, people noticed that the OK kosher symbol was found on Fuji film. And when they contacted Fuji in Japan and asked them what's going on, you know, they apologized that they used a trademarked symbol, but they asked them, why on earth are you putting a kosher symbol onto film? And Fuji said, well, kosher sells better in the United States. So they wanted to give it a try. But the point I'm focusing on here today is a different struggle. How we eat. Okay, while, while eating wisely and healthfully is obviously a universal goal. And as I said, if you can have the self-discipline to keep kosher, then you can apply that self-discipline to your diet to some degree too. The goal of a Jew in all of our endeavors is to transform the mundane into the sublime. To inject everything with holy purpose. To harness everything with which we interact to the service of Hashem. To move the needle of our inner drive from self-centered toward God-centered. 
And if we can move from soil, S-O-I-L, to soul, S-O-U-L, doing what God wants, we can be there for others as well. So in the context of eating, it means eating with the objective of using the energy that we get from the food and the pleasure. Ah, such nice sushi or Szechuan beef or tenderized steak, whatever you're enjoying, gazumta, nice pizza. Well, the pizza should come before the steak. But the point is, whatever pleasure and strength and energy you're gaining from the food, use it for a higher purpose, for a holier life, for a more purpose-oriented life, for a God-centered life. Be there for God. And this takes us back, this struggle takes us back to the very beginning of time. According to Rabbi Tzaddik of Lublin, this was the essential conflict for Adam and Eve, for Adam and Chava in the Garden of Eden. The verse speaks there of two trees, right? There was the tree of life, you all know, and the tree of, there was eight Achaim, and eight Hadat, the tree of knowledge, of good and evil. And they both stood in the Garden of Eden. And God instructed Adam and Eve, Adam and Chava, to eat of any tree in the garden except for one tree, the eight Sadas, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And Rabbi Tzadok offers a very interesting explanation. A very unique, mystical understanding of this very well-known narrative. And he says that both the tree of life and the tree of knowledge were not names of specific trees. Rather, they were two states of mind within the human being. Each tree had the potential of a human being to approach it as either a tree of life or as a tree of knowledge. Adam and Chava were faced with a choice. Every instance of their eating had the potential to be an experience of life, a godly experience that's not clouded by our selfish indulgence, or it could be an experience that is of da'as. What's da'as? Self-awareness. All about me, myself, and I. So the tree of knowledge symbolized eating in order to indulge in my own physical cravings. It's all about me. Nothing more. And ever since Adam and Eve, ever since they ate from that tree, from the etadas, self-awareness, the human default setting is to approach eating in that same self-centered fashion. Eating with that, you know, that's indulgence. That's uh, what's the right word for it? That, that, that's just hiddenness. That, what's the word? Eating with a holy consciousness. That's a difficult task sometimes. Each time we sit down to eat, there's that battle. There's a, there's a battle. There's a war. Will we be dominated by our temptations and urges? Or will we be strong enough to control, to be in control of our eating? Eating wisely in ways that are godly. Will we control the food or will the food control us? So what is the effect of eating in a more mindful and holy way? Not only does it have a major impact on us, and us I'm talking about every individual, our mind, our soul, our body, but it also has a major impact on the food that we're eating. Before we ate the food, it was just something physical, nothing more. But now through connecting it with something holy, We've elevated this food by redefining it as a vehicle for holiness. The food becomes a vehicle for holiness. There's a nice Hasidic story of a, a Farbrengen that was being celebrated 
back in Russia. And the, the food wasn't enough, right? And people finished up everything that was there. Maybe they were very hungry. So the host, it was a fellow, they, they called him affectionately the Rashbats, Shmuel Batsalo. He owned a goat. And luckily, at the Farbrangan, at this gathering, there was a shalchet, right? A ritual slaughterer. So he shechted, he slaughtered the goat, he roasted it, they had a nice bride, and they served it at the Farbrangan. During the night, this host's wife, she came, she woke up, and she asked her husband, where's the, sh- <laughs> where's the tzig, where's the goat? He said, the goat is still here. Only yesterday it said, bah. And today it's saying, Hashem Echod. You know, I think the story illustrates the idea of how we could uplift the food in our life. Reflection on the, the spiritual challenge from self-centered to God-centered. What am I doing with the energy? The same thing could be for going to the gym. Do you go to the gym just to be macho, to be strong, to build muscle, you show off your six-pack? Or are we going to the gym so we can be healthier? Healthier is ideal, it's important. Then you know if it's self-centered or God-centered. You know, there's another story that comes to mind of a rabbi who was sent by the Baal Tov to a particular place. And he told him where to go, but gave him no further instructions. The rabbi sat for a long time expecting something to happen. You know, what's going to What's going to be? Nothing, garnished. Nothing happened. When he came back to the Baal Tov, he said, I guess I failed. You know, you sent me to this place and I don't know what I was supposed to do there. Nothing happened. The rabbi figured maybe I wasn't worthy enough to fulfill the task that you sent me for. That's why nothing happened. And the Baal Shem had him repeat the whole story again. Asked him every single detail what happened along the way. And this time the rabbi included that he was thirsty and went over to a stream to get a drink. And the Baal Tov asked, did you say a bracha? He said, of course. And did you say a bracha achrana, the bracha bar nefashas afterwards? Certainly, Rabbi. You should know, the Baal Tov told him, that that stream from which you drank was waiting since creation for a blessing to be recited over it. It complained before the Almighty. You have elevated the entire stream that has been awaiting for so long for your blessing. So the Baal Tov was telling this man, Look, the mere fact that you made a bracha on a cup of water there, that in itself is fulfilling your divine mission and purpose for why you were there. And if we just look at Hasidus, it explains that a person's biological hunger and thirst is actually a reflection of our spiritual starvation. When someone is hungry or thirsty, it's a signal from the soul that it's time to rectify another corner of the world. It means that the desire for food and drink is actually a desire for divine service. Each soul has a certain, certain areas of this world that are part of its particular mission. You were born in the UK and I was born in the US and you were born in Egypt and each person in this group, I see we have a diverse group, people born in different parts of the world or travel different places. It's part of your soul's journey. And it's why perhaps we like different types of foods. And maybe we dislike certain types of foods. And the, the idea is that from a Jewish perspective, you look at food, it's much deeper than just eating 
the food in front of us. There's a lot more food for thought involved in the food, the values and everything else related to it. So in a sense, you could learn about a person, their overall worldview by the way they eat, really. They say you could learn about a person the way they eat. And the Talmud says that there are three clues to use when you want to learn about a person. You want to know what they are? This is in Gemara Tracted Erev and it says, number one is by their spending habits. Number two, by their anger. And number three, by their cup. Okay, so spending, anger, how quick they are, and cup. Cup represents all the matters of food and drink in a person's life. You know, food and drink. You know the story about a guy walks into a nice looking home and he says to the residents there, ah, I've eaten all day. He says, he says, I haven't eaten all day. Please give me something to eat. So they say, you came to the wrong place. We don't know you. Please leave. So the poor man begins to pace the room and he angrily says, if you don't give me food, I'll have to do what my father did. <laughs> the woman got a little scared, you know, who knows what he's going to do to him. So right away she prepares him a nice meal. And uh, before he's leaving, the woman says, just tell me one thing, please. What did, what did your father do? So, well, my father used to go to bed hungry. So all this can help us understand a deeper dimension to why we wash our hands before we eat our bread and why we do so in, or we're doing this in order to set the tone for our meal, to remind ourselves that our eating should not be more in just another impulsive behavior, but it should be something that is guided, that is informed by a sacred purpose for not just another mundane act. To quote to you words from the Maharal of Prague, and he quotes from the Gemara actually, in the Gemara on Tractate Sota, it says, one who eats bread without washing his hands is akin to one who has relations with a prostitute. That's what the Gemara says. And the Maharal asks, what's the connection? Like, you know, you didn't wash for your bread, it's like having relations with a prostitute? And the Maharal answers that, you know, relations with a prostitute, as opposed to moral, ethical, you know, a proper marital marriage, in, in a proper loving and, and sacred way, is about momentary pleasure, right? Honestly. So, when people engage in that, it's about, it's an act that's devoid of, of anything, of anything deeper than a real genuine relationship. And the Maharal says that's what the Gemara means, that the same could be said about how we eat. One could eat with a narrow objective to just derive momentary pleasure in the here and now, or a person can eat with a broader objective, where the physical nourishment and pleasure serve a larger context of sanctity, of self-transcendence. And when we wash our hands before we eat, Natila Sedaim helps set us in the right direction, that we do the right thing for the right purpose. So, just to... To summarize that idea, you know, water, we've said many times, is symbolic of Torah. It reminds us that our eating, among all our activities, 
should be guided by the divine, by Hashem's wisdom, by God's directives. That's the purpose of eating. It shouldn't just be self-centered. So we wash our hands specifically because most of our activities are done with our hands, which makes the message most relevant to the hands, right? We do most things with our hands. And within, we are pure. Our, our unholy attitudes and behavior, our behaviors, the things we do that are inappropriate, are often introduced to us by something that's outside of us. And that's why people will sometimes say, it wasn't me, it wasn't me. What do you mean it wasn't me? I saw you do it. It wasn't me, they're referring to the real me. And again, this is represented by the hands which extend outside of ourselves. So we wash our hands. And that was the idea, the insight that the Maharal was teaching us, that by washing our hands before we eat, right, we, we make sure that the eating is not an animalistic behavior, but it's something of a godly purpose. And although this mindset is important for all instances of food consumption, but Jewish law regards bread as the primary example of such food, of all food. And therefore, we try to do this whenever we're eating bread. Make sure if it's hamotzi, you know, you have another option of mizonos bread, which we could discuss another time, the difference between mizonos and hamotzi. Mizonos is considered more like a snack, whereas hamotzi is bread, which symbolizes food. High FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. And welcome back to Soul to Soul. I'm Rabbi Eric Kiebman. Great to be with you here this fabulous afternoon. Today we are talking about food for thought. We're talking about the Kabbalah of food. Please join me as we discuss a few more aspects of food today. Think about, think about it this way. Have you ever been to the Shul Bracha and everybody's fighting for that food? Personally, you know, during a time of a pandemic, I've become a little bit more aware. My parents raised me very, um, very, health conscious in that sense. And uh, hygiene was very important. And it personally, I get a little bit gross at that when people are double dipping and sticking their hands in the food and we arrive at a, at a bracha and it's like we haven't seen food in our life. So I think if you go back and think of this idea of the battle of food, lechem, bread, lo, which is food, lochem, battle, you think of the battle, the, the concept of Adam and Eve, that... Is my eating going to be like Eitz HaChayim? Is it for the purpose of life so I could fulfill my purpose in this world? Is it going to be a holy uh, purpose? Or is it going to be just about fulfilling my temptations, my urges, my own cravings? I just want that food. Okay, Ask yourself that question and sometimes we become a little bit more self-aware when we eat. So what's the idea of eating in a holy way? There, the food is impacting my mind, my soul, my body. And you think about the food we eat becomes a, a more refined purpose of eating. Okay, so let's launch straight now into how does a Jew eat food? We know that before we eat, it's not just about the physical. We have to elevate it to the spiritual. We make it a holier Exercise, and therefore, we're going to look at the brachas, the blessings we say when we eat the food. So, you know, the concept that Hasidus explains that a person's biological hunger and thirst is a reflect, is a reflection of our spiritual starvation. You know, when we are hungry or when we're thirsty, it's a signal from the soul 
that it's time to rectify another corner of the world. That it's time for us, like the story of the Baal Shem Tov, that the food we eat is going to be a spiritual exercise. We're refining that experience. It's going to be something holier than just food to be eaten, than just food to be consumed. So look at that. Your biological hunger, your spiritual starvation is a way for you to transform the world because it's part of your spiritual destiny.